1: What we eat, drink, and breathe, our stress levels, our use of pharmaceuticals, our interaction with the immediate physical and social environment, these are essential factors in genetic expression. Rather than worrying about the genetic hand we are dealt, we must optimize our health by the choices we make, and to talk about these healthy choices is our guest today, Dr. Kenneth Pelletier. Kenneth R. Pelletier is an integrative medicine pioneer and clinical professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, and former clinical professor of medicine at Stanford School of Medicine. He's the director of the Corporate Health Improvement Program known by the Ackerman CHIP, which is a collaborative research program between CHIP and 15 Fortune 500 corporations. He's a peer reviewer for several medical journals, including the Journal of Occupational and Environmental Medicine and is vice president with American Specialty Health. He's the author of many books, including Mind as Healer, Mind as Slayer, a Holistic Approach to Preventing Stress Disorder, and Change Your Genes, Change Your Life, Creating Optimal Health with the New Science of Epigenetics. Join us for the next hour as we explore the era of personalized medicine with our guest, Dr. Kenneth Pelletier. I'm Justine willis toms I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Ken, welcome.
2: Oh, thank you. I've been looking forward to our conversation.
1: Me too. Thank you so much for being part of it. I'd like to start. uh, You've done a lot of research and you collected a lot of research on the Human Genome Project. And you say that mapping, which we've been able to do, mapping the Human Genome is only one step in the revolution of healthcare. So, can you please explain?
2: Yes, uh, the Human Genome uh, Mapping Project was really like um, creating an alphabet. So, we now know the alphabet of the human. Uh, genetic code. What remains is how how does that alphabet create words? How do those words become sentences? How do the sentences become paragraphs? And how do we interpret that code? And what makes it even more complex is that the code is not fixed. Um, The code changes, and that gets us into the more recent research and the epigenetic uh, era where we're looking at interpreting the ever changing uh, genome.
1: Well, if with our genes, you're you're saying that they're not deterministic in their expressions, and so you mentioned epigenetics. So, how does this all work together? For the general public,
2: and I think for most people in health and medicine um the gene is fixed uh it's like the we assume that it's like the hard drive in a computer that it gives us our height eye color uh weight uh, gender uh what diseases we will contract how long we will live which is a very important variable The problem is that's not at all accurate. Um, Only five percent of what we see in adulthood uh, has to do with what are called monogenic or fully penetrant genes, where they are really, in fact, deterministic, like the uh, rules on a, a hard drive. What is much more accurate is that for the other 95%, what we're looking at is what we call gene expression. So the gene is like a push in a a direction, and then the epigenetic factors are things like stress, uh, diet, um, exercise, the environment, our social relationships with each other. That determines whether a push in a particular direction is going to be expressed, i.e. be evident, or if it's going to be suppressed and in fact never uh, show up even though we have a genetic push in a particular direction. So the epigenesis is the new science in the last 10 years which really focuses on the changes that our lifestyle makes in expressing the gene.
1: So if we know that and we want to have help with that, let's say with our healthcare services, you have a a view about healthcare in the state of health care right now. So if we if all of this new information is coming in, where are we with our health care right now? If we have an HMO or a doctor or whatever?
2: Well, it's a great question. I think where I see the future is that we are evolving into a healthcare system. I mean, right now today, we refer to the system of medical care as a healthcare system, but that's a complete misnomer. And this is not pejorative. What we really have is a disease management industry. Uh, disease has always been the province of medicine. The management of disease follows from that, and at one-tenth of the U.S. economy, it's definitely a, an industry or a business. So what we have right now is a disease management industry. What we're evolving into is a true healthcare system, and it's based on, on care and based on health that is uh, predictable, that is proactive and that really depends on having things be personalized. So the real impact of epigenesis is that it's no longer one diet fits all or one form of meditation fits all. What we will find out is exactly what we need biochemically in order to optimize our health and optimize our longevity. So the future of medicine is much more, um, in healthcare, and true healthcare is much more personalized.
1: But you know, uh, Ken, we're kind of bucking a whole economic system. I mean, for example, just recently, Goldman Sachs, which is a large and influential investment firm, has uh, given a report to some of its investors that, okay, don't, don't uh, let's not uh, go. Invest in curing disease because it's not economically uh, p- uh, p- profitable, and so we're the profit has power, and so we're really bucking uh, a pretty big system there. Wouldn't you say?
2: Well, there really are two approaches, and if you apply this this philosophy and difference, are we focused on disease cure, or are we focused on health enhancement? and longevity. And the the model that at least is in my book and the model that I have spent my career doing is really focused on optimizing health. And to be sure, there's an enormous amount of investment, there's an enormous amount of money and profit to be made, in medical care. The United States is the most expensive system in the world in terms of medical care. And yet on outcomes, it ranks 37th, 37th in the world. Our outcomes in terms of heart disease, suicide, homicide rate, uh, cancer deaths, ranks the same as uh, Bosnia, So we're number 37 in the world with the largest expenditure of medical care. The reality is, even though it may be profitable, it is literally impossible and it's becoming rapidly impossible to manage that amount of disease with an increasing amount of the national budget and all the other things that are not being funded, like homes, uh, food, uh, care for the elderly, uh, basic medical care services for those. 30 million people who don't have any healthcare, that's all being sacrificed to the in the name of disease management. So we're being forced to consider how can we prevent disease. And we know, again, statistically, somewhere around 80 to as much as 85% of all disease is entirely preventable. And yet we're only spending less than 2 or 3% of our annual budget in the prevention of disease. So it's it's not a matter of sheer dollars or even profitability. It's a matter of misallocation of limited resources.
1: Got it. Okay, so you mentioned going back to something you mentioned earlier about no one size fits all, and I know that you have stated in your book, uh, Change Your Genes, Change Your Life, there is no mythical average human I love that. so so you're saying that we really need to pay attention to our own individualized needs in the way our own body is working. is that is that right?
2: Correct. And even anatomically, um, uh, every human heart is different. Every human stomach is different. Every human body is, in fact as different as our fingerprints where we are at this point in time is we're on the edge of discovering our own unique biochemistry. And there are assays that can help us identify our unique genetic, blood and biomic or intestinal tract biochemistry. Once we know that, then the question about which diet is best, which stress management technique is best, um, which environmental factors are really impacting our health, uh, that becomes very clear because we know who we are. And right now, we're just adrift in in a barrage of conflicting dietary recommendations of every conceivable kind of stress management technique but we don't know if any of those really fit us or are in fact appropriate or produce health. Um I had a patient who came in and was on a carrot juice diet and had uh, and was feeling absolutely awful. Turned out that he had a major uh, carotene allergy. So he was literally poisoning himself with a product or the supposedly healthy uh, consumption that was actually making him more ill. So until we know who we are, we don't make very good choices.
1: And Ken, mostly when we go to a doctor these days, we get uh, uh, we, we have a lab test and they take our blood. So they do a blood sample. And you're talking about a, a whole uh, you call genetic assay or genetic evaluation, which includes quite a bit because it includes. Your individual genetic, you suggest that you also do your blood chemistry, but you do it a little bit differently than just taking one sample, I think. And then the the third one is your intestinal tract, which is a big deal. So I'm going to get into those uh, in just one moment. And I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Kenneth Pelletier. He's the author of Change Your Genes, Change Your Life, Creating Optimal Health with the New Science of Epigenetics. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website. It's drpelletier.com, and he spells that doctor, he abbreviates it, d-r-p-e-l-l-e-t-i-e-r, pelletier.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website I'm here with Dr. Kenneth Pelletier and he's the author of Change Your Genes Change Your Life Creating Optimal Health with the New Science of Epigenetics. Ken, we were just talking about these genetic assays or genetic evaluations that you recommend and so let's let's kind of go through them because they're very different than just a, a single blood test that you go to and get for your doctor. How's it different?
2: Well, any really complete mapping of our individual uh, genetic and biochemical makeup really needs four components, and these four components look at markers that are far beyond the ordinary laboratory values we get in an annual physical, and these four components are genetics, So a cheek swab will give you a genetic profile, and it's actually now as inexpensive to map your entire human genome than it is just to look for particular aspects of your genetic inheritance. So that's kind of the the fixed component, looking at the gene itself. What are we born with? It's like a blueprint for a house. Um, The second thing is then blood, or the CBC, or complete blood chemistry. If you have an annual physical, you probably get, oh, maybe a dozen blood markers. Um, And the genetic assays really look at upwards of 80 to 100 blood markers, uh, subfractions that are very predictive of certain diseases, very predictive of health, and gives you information on what you can do to modify that. And the third is the biome or the intestinal tract. This is the newest and trickiest part of this. Um, I would guess there are something like 300 colonies in the intestinal tract that contain trillions of cells each, trillions of cells each. So there are more cells between your mouth and your anus than there is in the entire human body. And if you include the uh, reproductive organs in women, that number is even higher. And right now, there are a few companies that are capable of interpreting the the biomic assay as the third part of this profile, Um, but it's rather like um, hieroglyphics before the Rosetta Stone. It's hard to interpret exactly what this complex system means, and it's instantaneously changing. So the fourth component, once you have these three assays, is then discussions with a genetic counselor. And this is someone who knows how to interpret the results. Uh, and And again, this is a, these are very complex systems. They're in constant change, and you need someone with experience and knowledge to help you really understand what is the meaning behind all these numbers and displays.
1: So I know that there are some uh, really very popular kind of genetic things. Let's say 23andMe would be an example. So what about these that are that are very popular?
2: Right. There are about 20 or 25 companies that provide various forms of genetic testing. There are more every day. Literally, in my email, I get an advertisement for a company, a new startup company in genetic testing at least once. So the, the the word is out, and the problem is is that most of them are quite honestly junk. Um, they they are not accurate, they're not individualized, and their predictions really are simply statistical. They say you've got a forty percent likelihood of irritable bowel syndrome. Well, what does that really tell you? It doesn't tell you anything about the other people who have the identical profile you do that fall into the sixty percent who don't get an irritable bowel as a result of this genetic push. So to me, that's the the critical question is what can we do if we are aware of a risk? What can we do to avoid that risk and move toward uh, optimal health? Um, So the same technology in genetics is either for disease prediction or for what we call healthy biomarkers. So the 23andMe is really in the disease prediction side of that. It tells you about 10 conditions which are known to have high push toward genetic likelihood of manifesting that disease. The problem is, again, even if you have an 80% likelihood of a particular disease, it does not tell you specifically is that your risk or is that just a general risk? And what about the 20% who don't? So I I object. I have concerns about that. It creates a lot of worry and anxiety for people, and they're not terribly accurate. The, the uh, other uh, approach, and some companies are doing this, we can discuss which four or five companies are doing a good job, really look at healthy biomarkers. So if we were having this conversation five years ago, and you asked, do you know your cholesterol level? Most people wouldn't. Today, almost everyone knows their cholesterol. So cholesterol is an example of a biomarker. So it's a number that tells you some part of your own body chemistry is high or low relative to a normal range. And what the epigenetic testing does is says, okay, if it's high, here's what you can do to bring it into the normal range. If it's low, here's what you can do to raise it into a normal range. The more of these healthy biomarkers that we bring into an optimal range for health and longevity, then we're really uh, developing a health system personally and collectively.
1: So this you're talking about we're we're really like a, a bacteria hotel where we're walking around like with all of this bacteria and much of it is really good for us. It's, that it's a good symbiotic relationship. And then there may be some that are not. So when we when we find that we're developing a symptom, let's say you mentioned irritable bowel. Okay, so here let's say we have that there are all sorts of ads for all these drugs, and they're very, very uh, provocative, and, and they're very seductive. So uh, what would you say about like taking drugs for, for that or for your cholesterol?
2: Well, it's a very good question, and I'm not anti-pharmacology by, by any stretch. I mean, our pharmacology is really, in most cases, excellent. Problem is we tend to overuse it. We tend to use pharmacology at very high dosages, and that produces side effects, which in, and then have to be corrected by other pharmacologies. So pharmacology is not bad if it's used in low dosages when it's clearly, predict, clearly indicated by the diagnosis, and it's well-tolerated and doesn't produce side effects. The problem is very few of our drugs really fall into that, that category. The greatest challenge is even if a person is on, say, a statin drug that can Control their cholesterol. The question is what can you do in terms of diet or stress or exercise, or any number of other factors that will in fact bring your cholesterol within a, a normal range? That's the more challenging uh, thing right now. and the the problem with the pharmacology model, is it, uh, if you think about a television advertisement, (laughs) it's a perfect pharmacology model. The advertisement comes on, describes a condition. It's usually having to do with depression. So it's yellow teeth or it's bad breath or whatever it happens to be. So it diagnoses a condition. Then it gives you an external solution. If you use this toothbrush, if you use this uh, food, if you buy this car, Then the third stage is an immediate resolution. You're happy, you've got friends, you're symptom-free, you have a wonderful life, and everything is fine. So in 60 seconds, you have a diagnosis, you have a cure from the outside of yourself that produces a healthy outcome. The problem is when we look at that message over and over, hundreds if not thousands of times in a week, it creates the illusion that the external pharmacology, the external car, the external diet is the solution to an internally challenging problem. What we're doing with the epigenetics area is turning it around and saying, what do we need to do internally before we rely on pharmacology or before we determine which pharmacology is really a best fit for us? That's really the challenge.
1: You know, Ken, I would think anybody, um, for me, if I watch one of those ads, they've, they, the legality is that they have to also say, well, you may have these side effects, and then they whip through all these side effects. And I'm thinking to myself, my goodness, are you kidding me? I'm going to subject myself to those side effects possibly? For me, it it says I'm I'm not going to touch those.
2: Well, it's even a misnomer. When we we casually refer to those, undesirable as side effects. What they are is primary effects that are undesirable. So these are not side effects, like you're getting this great benefit. And oh, by the way, up to and including death might be a side effect. (laughs) Those are primary undesirable side effects of a pharmacology. And again, in, in our research, we found that over the years, if you use low dose pharmacology, if people use them appropriately over time and engage in all the other lifestyle changes they need to do to regulate a condition, that's the optimal approach to health and longevity.
1: So uh, what what are some of the uh, caveats, again, going back to the caveats of direct to consumer genetic testing? What, what what would you say we should watch for if we're, we're going to try to go in that that way and find something suitable for us?
2: Well, the biggest caveat is to remember that it's a statistical prediction. It does not mean that you as an individual are in fact doomed or in fact free of uh, a particular risk. So that's the biggest caveat of all, to recognize that these are all uh, statistical predictions. If you get all three, the gene, the blood, the biome, and couple that with a genetic counselor, then you've got something that's individually predictive, but it also includes what you can do. And and this is critical, and I think that's what's missing in the -the over-the-counter genetic testing, which is it does not provide you with adequate information about what you can do to reduce your risk or enhance your particular predisposition. So those are the two biggest factors. You remember it's statistical and secondly to work with a counselor using high quality analyses to really then figure out what you can do to optimize your health and longevity.
1: So Ken as we are moving more towards preventive medicine or or personalized medicine rather than disease care medicine, it's not covered by insurance. So people have to pay out of pocket. So is this affordable? to get these four measures and, and be able to talk to someone who's capable of helping us? That
2: Again, that's a very good question. One is in, insurance companies are increasingly going to be covering these kinds of assays. In fact, I'm consulting with two national insurance companies that are actually beginning to develop a life insurance policy that will look at these four markers, these four areas, and say to you, you have a risk for heart disease. Here's what you can do about it. If you engage in our programs to reduce your risk, we will reduce the cost of your life insurance premium. So it's a, a true risk sharing on the part of the insurance company and the person buying the policy. So this is coming, this is within the next year or two, I think we'll actually you know, see these in the, the marketplace. now. The cost of the the genetic tests they range literally from a few hundred dollars for again all three and a counselor to over twenty five thousand dollars so the range is from hundreds of dollars to twenty five thousand There are four or five companies that for around two hundred dollars uh will provide the four tests that we just talked about now okay that- now i
1: I'm gonna have to interrupt you uh we're we're gonna take a break, but uh, let's come right back to that point in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners I'm here with Dr. Kenneth Pelletier, and he's the author of Change Your Genes, Change Your Life. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Kenneth Pelladier, and he's the author of Change Your Genes, Change Your Life, Creating Optimal Health with the New Science of Epigenetics. And right now we're talking about the affordability of these uh, evaluations, these genetic assays, and, and having a professional person help us interpret them. And you were, you were just about to say something about uh, a couple of those.
2: Right. There are really four or five companies um, that do a very quality job. of, of and, and again, I don't have any uh, financial interest in them. So, uh, But uh, one is uh, the mo- most high cost one that really uh, addresses all four is a company called Arival, uh, A-R-I-V-A-L-E. And I talk about these in the last chapter of my book. And this is a particularly good one. Um, it's uh, headed up by Dr. Leroy Hood, and he was one of the scientists involved in the original mapping of the human genome. So it's good, solid science. Um, it's rather pricey. It's around $3,000 uh, per year, but it, it's very well done. Others that fall in a couple of hundred dollars uh, a year are uh, a company called uh, DNA Fit, which is out of London, DNA, uppercase DNA, and then FIT, FIT. Uh-huh. Um, another is day two, and it's D A Y and then TWO day two. Uh, they're in Walnut Creek, California, and they're a an Israeli-based company that initially has focused on diabetic management. So they really use the biome to trace a person's response to food. In their intestinal tract, but it also tells you a great deal about everything that you consume, in addition to your uh, blood sugar. And so it's a, and it's again scientifically very solid. They've been around about ten years. Um, another is Thorne, T H O R N E. Thorn is a nutraceutical company uh, in New York, <clears throat> and again, very reputable. They're the only nutraceutical company that's ever been allowed to use the Olympic logo. They, for the um, summer games uh, last year, uh, they were actually allowed to use the Olympic logo. They have a new product called Longevity. Longevity, like longevity, but without the L. And Longevity is, again, a relatively inexpensive, I think it's less than $200 $200 to give you these three assays, and then there's always an optional counseling uh, service that's anywhere between 20 and 30 minutes. That normally runs about $50. So if you think about adding these up, it's maybe $200 to $300 total to get one of these, uh, one of these complete assays.
1: Well, that that's getting more reasonable for most people. I think even even people on fixed income can possibly be able to squeeze out some and save some pennies to get that one done. I I think so. That's that's very uh exciting. I'd and I'd love for you. You mentioned about something about food. I'd love for you to talk to something you call nutrigenomics. Is that right?
2: Yes, nutrigenomics. And Genomics. One of the the, and again, you don't need. Uh, just backing up, um, you don't need to have these assays in order to make these changes. In fact, in the book, what I do is I say, look, even if you don't have a nutrigeno- a nutrigenomic or a diet-related assay, there are some things you can do if you saw- if you find out that you've got an elevated uh, inflammatory blood response. Most people do have uh, an inflamed, if you will, body. And there are things that we can do even without having these assays. So there, there are changes. We can make these changes without the assays. I think it's better and wiser and you know, more helpful if we know exactly what the target is and we can see exactly how we're making changes. But we don't need um, to always uh, always have that, and that that's uh, very important to realize. Uh, Nutrigenomics recognizes that one of the major influences on gene expression is diet. And let's just take up the the marker of inflammation. Um, inflammation, if it's high, can lead to heart disease, can be irritable bowel, it can be rheumatoid or arthritic disorders. If it's too low, then you have a compromised immune system, and you're going to have infections and colds and other kinds of um, immune-suppressed conditions. Now, people say, well, gee, if inflammation is bad, we should eliminate it, and that's not the point. Uh, Inflammation is good. If you get a cut, that reddening around the cut is your inflammatory response, and it helps you to heal. Um, so what we want is to maintain these. And again, if you have high inflammatory response, you can have things like uh, brussels sprouts, uh, cauliflower, red and green, uh, deeply colored fruits and vegetables. All of those are anti-inflammatory and produce a much more positive level of blood chemistry for inflammation.
1: What would you say, though, about people who have, and boy, I'm in this category, can I have a very boring, although good diet, I have a very boring diet. And people are saying, okay, I shouldn't be eating the same thing every day. So you mentioned Brussels sprouts. I eat a lot of Brussels sprouts in a week. That's one of my go-to vegetables. So, But I have it often. And does the body then become resistant to that food? (laughs)
2: <laughs> no, uh, that's, oh, goody. that's a good question. <laughs> uh, no, bodies don't develop tolerances to, to foods. We never really develop a food intolerance um, to a food that we like. And the diet you eat may in fact be boring for other people, but the most important thing is that it have a variety. And most diets, when you look at the conflicting... Uh, recommendations. There isn't a single thing I can think of that someone hasn't made a diet out of it. Now there's a celery detoxification diet, there's a ketogenic high fat diet, there's a paleolithic high protein diet, there's high fat, low fat, every conceivable form of diet. The problem is if you don't know your own chemistry, how can you know what diet fits you the best? That's the basic question underlying epigenetics when it comes to diet. When you figure out what you really need, and these assays are very specific, they'll say eat walnuts, not almonds, because you don't digest almonds very well, but you do digest walnuts extremely well.
1: So that would be an individual that might be that individual.
2: Correct. It's highly individualized, and diets are as individualized as our fingerprints. So a diet may be boring for a person, but it may be exactly what you like. It may be a perfect diet for you. Uh, Most diets, if you look at them analytically, come down to variants of the Mediterranean diet. And the Mediterranean diet is the most well-studied. It's been around for 25 years. Walter Willett, the professor of medicine at Harvard, is the person who first recognized that people around the Mediterranean Sea... So. Spain, Greece, Italy, Turkey, uh, North Africa uh, have a very low incidence of heart disease, a very high degree of health, long life expectancies, and they break many of our rules. They have high-fat diets. They have reasonably high alcohol consumption. They break a lot of the rules of diet, and yet their diets produce a great deal of health in that population. And if you look generally as a good map... To see how your diet meets up and matches an EPA and Mediterranean diet, you'll have a pretty good approximation of the ideal diet for you, with modifications to your own taste and your own needs.
1: There's been a lot of studies I know for, uh, with Seventh Day Adventists, and they've mostly been they've really tested out some vegetarian diets. Is it, am I correct in that one?
2: Yes, um, the the studies of Seventh-day Adventist Mormons um, have really demonstrated that it's a diet, yes, but even more importantly, it's a general lifestyle. So if you think about the context, the Seventh-day Adventist or Mormon lifestyle has a social support. It has friends. It emphasizes uh, spiritual beliefs, a sense of purpose in life, and it also has, at least for most of them, no alcohol, uh, high vegetable content, moderate amounts of uh, uh, protein. So it's and, and physical activity. So the total lifestyle. What you see is that Seventh-day Adventists have longer life expectancies, and less of the major chronic diseases that we see in the general population. Again, the same with Mormon and their other subgroups that adhere to a Seventh-day Adventist-like diet that actually have improved health and extended longevity.
1: So um, what you're saying is also mind matters. How we think matters. So it's not just what we take into our bodies as as nutrition, but how we're thinking, our belief systems and our support systems.
2: Absolutely. Stress is probably the second greatest impact on uh, the gene. And on the uh, negative side, uh, stress produces uh, catabolic changes or mobilization of, of the body to meet to fight or flight, to either run away or engage in combat. That catabolic process is very destructive to the human body. It produces high levels of uh, hormones that are destructive, high levels of uh, 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 adrenal corticotrophic hormones, et cetera. The positive side of that then is uh, a meditation. And there's a study out of Harvard that I thought was fascinating. They took people who had never meditated before they looked at their genetic expression before and after 15 minutes of meditation, a mindfulness meditation, very simple, very clear. They looked before and after and what they found after 15 minutes of one session of people who had never meditated before, they actually changed their genetic expression in a positive direction. Now that's astounding to think about. Yes. So it doesn't mean that that's going to, you know, extend your life and do all of those miraculous things. But it means that if you practice that over time, we're looking at a cumulative uh, events. So cumulative meditation, cumulative dietary change, cumulative physical activity, that's what it's all about. People always say, yes, I've quit smoking. I've done it a hundred times. Well, that's true. The problem is, is that the 101th time when you really quit is what you're after. And so with diet, it's not a matter of changing your diet or losing a, a few pounds. It's what can you sustain for your entire life?
1: So the other one, big one, as far as lifestyle goes, is exercise. And there we go. What what would you say that we need to to do with exercise? And I'm, I'm going to have you uh, go into that question in just a moment. But I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Kenneth Pelletier, and he is the author of Change Your Genes, Change Your Life, Creating Optimal Health with the New Science of Epigenetics. And uh, Ken, his website is drpelletier.com, and he spells that uh, doctor, abbreviates it, d-r-p-e-l-l-e-t-i-e-r.com drpelletier.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Dr. Kenneth Pelletier. He's the author of Change Your Genes, Change Your Life, Creating Optimal Health with the New Science of Epigenetics. Ken, uh, we're just launching in now to the uh, idea of exercise as a way of really taking care of our own health and really making a difference. So what do you have to say about exercise?
2: What we know from the latest research is that what's called interval training is actually better than steady state aerobic. So it used to be you raise your heart rate up to a certain level, keep it at that level for 15 or 20 minutes, and then go through cool down. It turns out that's not actually the most efficient use of time or of exercise capacity. So an in interval training is very simply that you elevate your heart rate for two or three minutes to it, to your optimal range, then you drop it down for two or three minutes, and you elevate it again for two or three minutes, and you do that over about a 12 to 15-minute time period. So that fluctuation of accelerated heart rate, blood pressure, and then dropping it down to a normal range and back and forth is called interval training, interval exercise. It's the most efficient use of time, but it also helps the heart rate and heart rate regularity. It also preserves the, the elasticity of the arterial system, so we're getting maximum benefit. Now, uh, there's a study out of Finland that came out actually after, I think, I think it's in my book, I'm not sure, but it was right around the time I was finishing the book that looked at Uh, Finnish uh, soccer players, and what they found is that compared to amateur athletes, the Finnish soccer players all have a very highly expressed, much more positive uh, epigenetic profile. Uh, So all of their their, uh, epigenetic markers for health and longevity were improved because of their level of physical activity. So that becomes a very important variable in all of these influences that help us to both live healthy and live long. uh, the other that I thought was really interesting in the Finnish study was that the telomere or the marker for how long we will live was actually enhanced. And there have been several studies which are fascinating about things that we can do in the epigenetic realm that actually seems to influence how long we will live.
1: That's really very interesting that we have we really can affect, even, even if our genetic makeup says, okay, that maybe... Our longevity isn't marked out, but we can really change that. Epigenetics and the way we exercise and eat can make a difference. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, The telomere is an X-shaped chromosome, and it was uh, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn here at UCSF School of Medicine received the Nobel Prize about seven years ago for discovering the, the the structure of the telomere and the X has a length to the arm and then the cap of it is like a shoelace. So however long the arm is and however integrated or intact the cap is tells you that you've got a good life expectancy. If it's short and if it's frayed, it means your life expectancy is shorter. This is independently of what your gene says. It's like and you can influence, you can elongate the telomere, you can improve the cap and and therefore uh, biochemically look at extending your life expectancy. And again, any number of studies have demonstrated that when people change their diets, engage in stress management, have exercise, have a positive psychosocial environment, live in a healthy environment, and that means free of radiation and petrochemical exposure, that has a life-extending impact on the telomeres.
1: So, so I'm trying to imagine the telomeres. Is that like a covering over the, the gene or what? Well,
2: the gene itself has a coating. They're called single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. It's like a chemical coating uh, that surrounds the gene. So the gene, again, doesn't change. It can be damaged by petrochemical and by radiation, but it's fairly fixed. This is the expression, and the SNPs act like rheostats, so it turns up the expression or turns it down. And with the telomere, it's not so much the, uh, the SNP, but it's the actual length of the telomere itself and the tip. And when the biochemistry surrounding the telomere changes in a positive direction, it relaxes, it elongates, and the cap becomes more intact, which means the cell, as it replicates, is going to replicate more accurately over time, and the longer cells replicate accurately over time, the longer that we will live.
1: I think, and you use the, the term rheostat, and that's a very different term. We, we've heard you turn on your gene or turn off your gene like a light switch, but you're saying you turn it up or turn it down. It's It's got a, a subtle difference there. Thank you for
2: asking that. That's very important. Uh, and again, a lot of the epigenetic assays uh, give you the information as though you turn a gene on or off like a light switch. That's not it at all. A reset is one where you can either brighten the light in a room or turn it down to almost invisible lighting. That's what the gene does, and that's what the biochemistry, the SNP, around the gene does. It says you can turn up inflammation if it's too dull, you can turn it down if it's excessive, but it does act like a dialing mechanism up or down. So to express or suppress that particular genetic characteristic.
1: What about um, uh, supplemental nutrients Would they be helpful in this whole scenario of helping turn up our good genes and having them express themselves rather than the bad ones or the ones that are not healthy?
2: Absolutely. And again, to really know what supplements you need. Supplements are good, generally. Uh, Let me just start with that. Um, But it's really important to get this biochemical profile so you can know what supplements you need and in what quantity. So you don't want to be taking on large amounts of supplements if you really don't need them. Uh, For instance, uh, uh, omega-3 fish oils uh, are very good to reduce inflammation for heart health and for vascular elasticity. But, you know, it's very expensive. So the prescription is normally three to four grams a day. Well, that's really quite expensive. You may or may not need that much, if you had a genetic assay, you'd probably save the money in terms of buying your your, uh, supplements by having the assay, but that can be a very beneficial effect. So overall, the kinds of supplements we take are beneficial, and it's important to know how much and what kinds for your particular biochemistry.
1: And also, how do we know that they're actually being absorbed?
2: Yes. Well, there are actually assays that can tell you about absorption. And the uh, analogy would be the uh, bloodstream is like a highway, and you don't know if the products in that highway are being delivered to the warehouse, which is the cell. And you can actually look on, on bioavailability assays that tell you how well are you absorbing particular nutrients. There may be an abundance of a nutrient in your bloodstream, and yet your cells are deficient. And that shows that there's some problem in terms of the conduction into the cell. And again, it's usually correctable, but that's the kind of assay that we need.
1: Right. So it seems like uh, once you maybe have an assay or evaluation and you've talked to a professional about it, and then you start taking supplements, you might want to follow up with another assay or evaluation to see how you're doing with the recommendations.
2: Right. And these assays are becoming, for some of us might say, well, Good grief. I hate a blood draw. And and they're right. I have not found anyone who loves a blood draw. But there is a new technology that we will see certainly by mid-2019 and by the end of this year for a certainty with a blood draw. It's like a half of a tennis ball. You attach it to your upper arm, and it draws 200 microliters of blood directly through your skin into a little ball. It's stable at room temperature. You don't have to worry about packing it in ice. You can, it, it'll be an over-the-counter consumer product that will give you 40 or 50 blood markers without a blood draw. So that ends the problem of a person saying, well, I'd like to test this over time, but I don't want to do four blood draws in a year. And again, you might. you don't really want to look at these every week. Probably every six months is more than adequate. To just gauge how are you doing, like you would gauge your cholesterol if you're concerned about that or any other biochemical marker. But it's not a matter of becoming, um, you know, phobic about what are my blood assays doing today. They fluctuate and they fluctuate vastly over time, day to day and week to week.
1: So let's end here with one other aspect of good health, and that is sleep. So I'd love for you to give us your view of sleep and how how is it important to our overall health. First, Yes.
2: yes, now sleep is critical. Disrupted sleep is very disruptive to our entire uh, body chemistry. And increasingly, you find that within corporate programs, which is really the main. Research that I do, uh, that sleep is is vital. Uh, and what we mean by vital sleep is usually, again, it's the seven to eight hours. If a person is sleeping less than seven hours, if they're down around four or five hours, that's associated with a high disease risk. If they're if they're sleeping more than eight to ten hours, then you're looking at other conditions. Depression is very commonly uh, symptomatic of people who are sleeping more than eight to ten hours. Uh, a day. But if you have normal sleep, it is a powerful regulator of all the biological functions we've been talking about. All of your chemistry, all your hormone levels, your stress hormones, your dietary absorption, your heart rate, your regularity are all governed by, uh, by sleep. And it's not a matter of taking sedatives to sleep a matter of sleep hygiene, and that's another whole matter, but there are simply practices that people can engage in that ensure a healthy, reasonable 78 hours of sleep.
1: Well, Ken, we could go on and on. I just want to thank you so much for being with us today on New Dimensions.
2: Oh, thank you. I've enjoyed this very much, and thank you for the invitation.
1: Thank you. Uh, My pleasure. I've been speaking with Dr. Kenneth Pelletier. He is the author of change your genes, change your life, creating optimal health with the new science of epigenetics. And if you'd like to be in touch with him, his website is drpelletier.com. That's Dr. D-R-Pelletier, P-E-L-L-E-T-I-E-R.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.